Welcome to the sermon podcast from Free School Court Church in Bridgend. This podcast features sermons from the Bible, which are recorded at our Sunday services each week. To find out more, please visit our website, freeschoolcourt.org.uk, or find us on social media. Now that Lydia and I have moved for the first time to a house with a proper garden, I have taken up gardening. And as anyone would do when they take up gardening, the first thing that I did was not to join the church gardening WhatsApp group. I haven't made it quite to that level just yet. So I did the next best thing, which is to start watching Gardener's World. Start watching Gardener's World. And the one thing that I've learned from watching Gardener's World is that you have to plant the right things in the right places and give them the right care. You have to plant the right things in the right places and care for them in the right way. And watching and learning this reminded me of something that happened to me when I was in primary school. We had a lesson and what we were told to do in this lesson was we were each given two runner bean seeds to plant. We were each given two runner bean seeds to plant, two little pots in which to plant them. And then we were given three choices as to what we could plant them into. And the three choices were these. The first one was compost. The second one was shredded newspaper. And the third one was gravel. Now, everyone in the class, of course, chose to put in one of their pots compost. And then about half of the class chose to put in their other pot the shredded newspaper. And the other half chose to put gravel in their little pots. And then we planted the beans, watered them, and then waited to see what would happen. And of course, in time, those that had the compost in them, the little shoots started to appear and started to grow. Those that were planted in the shredded newspaper also, in time, started to grow. But those that were planted in the gravel, they didn't grow. I think some of the kids had probably seen the weeds growing up through their parents' gravel driveways, and so had thought that that might be a good thing to use. But of course, the gravel was barren. Nothing was able to grow within the gravel. And this evening, we'll find out about a woman who was barren and about the power of God as he worked in her life. So let's start, turn to verse 1, and let's meet this man and then his wife. We meet in verse 1, this man, Elkanah. And then we find out in verse 2 that this man was a man who had two wives, One was called Hannah, and the other, Penina. And we find Penina had children, and Hannah had none. And it seems that what happened in this situation was that Elkanah married Hannah first. That those two together were married first. And as time went by, they didn't have children together. As time went on, they still didn't have any children. And of course, this was taking place, as we, um, as we found, as we went through with the book of Ruth. This was at the end of the time of the judges. It was a time and a culture where building up your family on the piece of land that you owned, well, that was what life was all about. That was your chief goal in life, was to build up a big and successful family on the piece of land that you owned. And so this man, Elkanah, did what any man who needed an heir would do. Of course, if we think about 
other times in history, there's one other famous man, isn't there, who had a lot of wives because he was trying to find, uh, trying to get an heir, Henry VIII. So Elkanah did likewise. He took another wife. A very common thing to do at the time would be to take another wife so that you could get an heir. Of course, we think of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar doing exactly this earlier in Genesis. But in time, there was a problem. We read in verses 3 to 8 of the problems that started to arise with this situation of Elkanah and his two wives, with Penina having children and Hannah having none. Verse 3, year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Manina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Between these two women, strife arose. We read verse 7, year after year this went on. Year after year, Penina would cause grief to Hannah as they went up to worship the Lord. It's worth noting, we see verse 3, year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord. It seems that Elkanah was a godly man. Again, this was happening at the time of the judges, a time, if we remember, where there was no king in Israel and each person did what was right in their own eyes. Many turned away from the Lord, but Elkanah leads his family in worshipping God. But we see for poor Hannah, these times of worship were actually times that exacerbated her pain. We imagine the scene described to her, don't we? Described here, don't we? Them going to worship and Elkanah handing out many portions to Penina and to all her sons and daughters. He would go around handing them out one after the other after the other. And then he gets to dear Hannah, dear Hannah by herself. And after handing out so many, it feels wrong to him to just give her one because he loves her so. His first wife, he loves her so much that he has to just give her two. But all of this exacerbates her pain. And we read, don't we, in verse 6 and 7, it's repeated for us that the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Seems a bit shocking to us, doesn't it, that the Lord had closed Hannah's womb womb. And we see again how Penina provoked Hannah until she wouldn't even eat. Though obviously this time of worship should be a time of feasting and of joy, Hannah would not even want to eat. And then we see in verse 8, Elkanah trying to comfort Hannah, asking her why she's weeping, asking why she doesn't eat, asking why she's downhearted. And we see him trying to offer her comfort. Am I not more to you than ten sons? And of course, Elkanah means a lot to Hannah. But her beloved husband 
who was likely once just hers and hers alone, she now has to share with Penina, the one who afflicts her, and with all those other children. There are lots of stories in the Bible, the parables of the New Testament, for example, that are given to us to illustrate real people or to illustrate the the, um, condition of the nation at the time. Think of Jesus telling the parable of the prodigal son, explaining to the Pharisees why he would eat with sinners and with tax collectors. In that story, the younger brother who went off represents the sinners and the tax collectors. And the older brother, that was the Pharisees. That represented them. And it's not just the parables, but real characters in the Bible often represent for us um, the state of nations. And I think what we see here is illustrative of the state of Israel at the time. As we consider Hannah and Penina, we have illustrated for us the state of the nation at the time. There was war in different places. Each people were doing what was right in their own eyes. And yet, in the midst of this, some people were thriving. They were fruitful. Think of Penina. She was a woman who was fruitful. She had everything she needed. She had a husband who obviously had some, um, some good amount of money. And she had many children, many sons and daughters. She was fruitful, yet she showed no concern for God. No concern for her relationship with God that we can see. Even at these times of worship, all she seems interested in doing is rubbing it in Hannah's face, what Hannah does not have. Yet at this time, at the time of the judges, still in Israel, there is a faithful remnant faithful few who are in right relationship with God, who are uh, are caring about their relationship with God. Remember Boaz and Ruth, spiritual people, devoted still to the Lord in the mess that this nation had become. And here is Hannah, the barren one, yet the one who had a life-giving and fruitful relationship with God. The nation was a mess disconnected, wars going on, people doing what was right in their own eyes, and the evil ones seemed to thrive while the holy ones had nothing. They were barren. But change was coming. Change that the afflicted faithful had longed for and prayed for. The nation was about to be turned upside down as the oppressed were remembered and lifted up. The world was about to be turned upside down as the faithful are made fruitful. And we feel like Hannah sometimes, right? We feel like Hannah sometimes, aware of our barrenness, spiritually speaking, aware of the barrenness of our hearts. We feel like Hannah when we look at the state of our world, the state that our world and our country are in, barrenness of our nation. We feel like that when we look at the church as well, I'm sure. But we, like Hannah, longing for the barren to be made fruitful, for spiritual renewal, for revival even. You see, Hannah was not just longing for a son. She was longing for a son, 
but she was not just longing for a son. Anna was longing for spiritual renewal in her nation. Anna was longing for spiritual renewal in her nation. We see this made plain for us at the start of chapter 2 when Hannah prays that glorious prayer, praising the Lord for how he has indeed turned things upside down. He has lifted up the humble and sent away the proud. He's lifted up the ones who know their need of God and have turned to him. And the proud who think they can do it on their own, think that they've got everything that they need, they are sent away empty. Hannah was not just looking for a son, but she was looking for the spiritual renewal in her nation. And she wanted a son, yes, but she wanted a son to be the means of spiritual renewal, to be used for spiritual renewal in her nation. So what about us? Do we feel like Hannah? Do we feel the pain of our barrenness and that of our church and of our nation? Do we long to, to, in our hearts, be made fruitful? Do we long to bear the fruit of the Spirit within our hearts? Do we long for our churches to see conversions and spiritual growth? We have to ask ourselves this evening, what is the controlling factor in our lives? Is it God or is it ourselves? Are we relying and looking to God or are we trusting in ourselves? Are we looking like Hannah for revival and renewal. If we are, it starts with us in our own hearts. Like Hannah, we have to recognize our need. We need to be honest with ourselves here. And in the case of Hannah, her womb at this time was barren, but her heart was fertile. We see this in how she deals with her grief and her pain. Verse 9. Once they'd finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. Hannah gets up from the feast and she leaves to pray before the Lord's house. Eli, the priest, is sat there in the seat of honour by the door of the Lord's house. And what happens next is, in my view, one of the most glorious things in the whole Bible verses 10 to 11. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I'll give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. Hannah turns to the Lord in prayer, trusting that he is able to act able to intervene for her. At this time, lots of the nations surrounding them would have had their own gods. And it was believed that each rural area, each, each local area had its own god that was, that was in control over just that area. Not so with Hannah. She prays to Lord Almighty, to Lord of hosts. Her god is a big god, a powerful god, the god of all the universe. And yet she has an intimate relationship with him. She's able to come before him and pour out her soul before him. And notice how she doesn't grumble or demand. She's just honest, humble, pleading with the Lord. This is a a faith-filled honesty before God. 
a humble requesting to be remembered. And we see this verses 12 to 17. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. It's worrying, isn't it? It's illustrative, of, again, of the state of the nation that this man, this spiritual leader of the nation, thought when he saw real prayer that Hannah was drunk. He didn't recognize real prayer. But again, Hannah here, as she pleads with God to give her a son, is not just bargaining with God. I remember times when I was a child, and maybe you've had similar experiences where you have a headache or something like that and you find yourself praying to God and saying, God, if you just take away this headache, I'll live for you for the rest of my life. It's not what Hannah is doing here. She's not saying, if you give me a son, I'll give him to you. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. No, Hannah has a bigger vision here. She longs for a son, yes, but she longs for a son that will play a part in her greater longing, the spiritual renewal of her nation. That's why she commits him to the Lord. That's the Lord's purpose in closing her womb. To bring forth one through her faith that would change things. And one that would point to us, to another one who would come later and change everything. In her desire for these things, Hannah turns to prayer. And do we have this longing again? Let's ask ourselves, do we have this longing for our own hearts, for our church, for our nation, that the barren would be made fruitful? We have to examine ourselves. But we must not look to ourselves. We must look to Jesus. We have to consider our hearts and be honest with ourselves here. But we must not look inwards, thinking that we can change things, that we can fix things for ourselves. We have to look at our hearts. And if we see barren hearts, dry hearts, we must not try and fix it ourselves, but we must look outwards to Jesus. We must pray, recognizing our need, pouring out our soul to God, that he would act for us. Like Hannah, recognizing our need, requesting him to act, to make the barren fruitful. Do we turn to prayer like this, like Hannah? Do we turn to prayer in our longing for the barren to be made fruitful, in a longing for our spiritual life to be more vibrant, in, a, in our longing for our church to be more fruitful, do we turn to be prayer to prayer? I wonder what your prayer life is like at the moment. I'm preaching to myself here as well. Could it be said of us as a church that we are a prayerful church? Would that be an accurate description of us? And if not, why not? Do we pray as individuals? Do we come together to pray together? Uh, Lloyd-Jones' wife said of him that no one would truly understand her husband unless they knew that first of all, though he was a famous preacher, that first of all, he was a man of prayer. 
And many times through his life, Charles Spurgeon was asked what the secret to his success was. And his favourite response was to say, my people, pray for me. Do we turn to God in prayer, longing that he would, um, he would set a flame in our hearts for spiritual things, longing that he would do that for us together as a church? You know, the Apostle James writes simply, doesn't he, that we have not because we ask not. We're rightly, I think, we're rightly concerned that we don't want to get close to the prosperity gospel, do we? We don't want to think of God as a magic genie where we ask and it's given to us. But do we pray? Do we ask at all? Humbly, praying in accordance with his will, do we ask? Hannah prayed. She turned to God and she went away changed. Her circumstances didn't actually change immediately, did they? But Hannah herself walked away changed. We see in verse 18 um, that she went her way, ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. She went away from her prayer changed. Her prayer to God had brought peace. Prayer changes things. And of course her circumstances did change in time. Look with me at verses 20 to the end of the chapter. Verse 20. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband, Elkanah, went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband, Elkanah, told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Hannah prayed and her circumstances did change. The Lord heard her prayer, both for a son and for spiritual renewal in Israel. It was his will to bring Samuel to be the new judge, priest and prophet. One who would install a king. A king who would be one who was a a man after God's own heart. And a king who would eventually bring forth another king. Who would bring spiritual renewal to all who would come to him in faith. And Samuel himself points us to Jesus. In Luke's gospel he goes out of his way to draw a comparison between um, Samuel and Jesus. In Luke 2, 52 he talks of how Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And that's taken from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. What was said of Samuel as he grew up there serving God in the temple. We have also this little hint in verse 22 when Hannah says that she will take Samuel and present him before the Lord and he will live there always. These little pointers showing us that one greater would come. And it's Jesus we must see and respond to 
in this passage. We must recognise our true situation. Penina, from an earthly point of view, had everything. A husband of status, more than enough children. Yet if she didn't have God, she had nothing. Anna was barren, reminded constantly of her lack, and yet she had everything. She was able to pour out her soul before the creator of the entire universe. And so this evening, we must ask ourselves, do we have everything but nothing, or nothing but everything? We think of the parable that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. There was that rich man who had everything that he could need, and there was Lazarus who lay at his gate, starving, hungry, longing for the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And what happens? The rich man died and he had nothing. Lazarus died and he had everything. If you have Jesus and um, nothing, you have everything. If you have everything and not Jesus, you have nothing. And I want to be careful this evening. I don't want to minimize whatever your nothing might be. I don't want to minimize whatever it is you're struggling with this evening. Whether like Hannah, it's infertility, whether it's singleness, whether it's our physical health, chronic, chronic pain, depression, anxiety, grief, broken relationships, failed dreams, dead-end jobs, whatever it is. I don't want to minimize those things. Those, those pains and hurts are real. And I don't want to say or suggest that God promises to change all of our circumstances immediately. The longed-for child, so to speak, whatever that is for you, may not come, may not be born to you. But a child was born for you 2,000 years ago, Jesus. One who came to bring life, peace, joy, fullness for you and for me. One who wouldn't comfort us with like Alcana did by saying, am I not more than 10 sons to you? But one who comforts us by saying, I have loved you and given myself for you and to you. One who came to bring life, peace, joy and fullness. The one who came to live and die and rise again to bring us life and a future. To come to our dry and dusty and barren souls and bring streams of living water that we might know life and life abundant and this life and the life to come. This is here for all of us in Jesus. And do we want more? Because I am sure that even the holiest person here this evening will want more of Jesus. We should want more for ourselves and for our church. If we feel anything of this barrenness within our souls, it should drive us to our knees in prayer, to pour out our souls before God, that he would come to us, that he would make the barren fruitful, that he would make our faith more vibrant and tangible, that we would have more of the aroma of Jesus about us, that we would know more of the Holy Spirit within our hearts, more of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, more of the adoption um, to sons and daughters of God that the Spirit provides to us. And we should pray that our churches would know renewal 
and revival. That our church would be more faithful to him. That we would be more prayerful, because that's where this starts. And that God would move amongst us for his own glory. We know he can do it. He's done it before. And he's promised to build his church. He can, as he did with Hannah, as he did with the nation of Israel. He can make the barren fruitful. In Jesus, he has turned the world upside down. That the humble might find life. The proud will be sent away empty. So recognize your need. Come to him. Request him to act in your own hearts and in our churches. He may not change our circumstances in the ways we might like, but his ways are not our ways. He loves us. He's shown it in and through Jesus. And he's working all things for our good until he makes all things new. That's the upside down that we need and should long for. If we would see God working, making us into a fruitful individuals and a fruitful church, we need this. We need firstly a reality check to recognize either our barrenness apart from God or our inability to change our circumstances on our own. We need him to save us and to renew us and to revive us. We need this reality check and to recognize our need. And then we need a renewed vision, a renewed vision for revival and renewal again in our hearts and in our church. And with that renewed vision, let's request him to act. Let's get on our knees and pray. Let's follow Hannah's example of how it's good to pray for what causes us pain and for what we long would change in our lives. But let's also see with Hannah that bigger longing for spiritual renewal, for revival. Let's pray that God would pour out his spirit, bless his word and renew and revive our hearts and our church, making the barren fruitful by his power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We pray that each and every one of us would see our need of you, see our, our barrenness apart from Christ. And we pray that we would long for more by your spirit. We pray that you would come to us and renew and revive us. We pray that we would be given by you a, a bigger vision to um, see ourselves, our own hearts transformed, our church transformed, and the lives of many who as yet do not know you transformed by Jesus. We thank you that you're a God who can give life, a God who can renew and revive, and we pray that you would be pleased to do that. Make us a more prayerful church, we pray in Jesus' name.